Ten weeks ago, Melbourne truck drivers stopped for a bike at a Kilmore cafe in regional Victoria and travelled on to Shepparton and Benalla in the state's court. What the truck driver didn't know was that days earlier he'd been exposed to the coronavirus in Melbourne. His visit to Shepparton brought him into contact with 11 local businesses. At the time, Victoria was in one of the most demanding COVID lockdowns in the world. Shepparton, like many other regional towns, had done its best to observe the restrictions and succeeded so well that there had been no cases for weeks. And now a rogue visitor had put it all at risk. Three cases were identified in Shepparton after the truck driver's visit. What seemed to make it worse was that the truck driver took two weeks to admit to contact traces that he'd visited Shepparton. Locals were angry, anxious and desperate to make sure that their town would remain clear of the virus. Hundreds queued to be tested, some waiting for up to five hours in the warm late spring sunshine at a pop-up testing site at local showgrounds. Within days, there'd been sufficient tests processed to show Shepparton had contained the outbreak. The community's commitment to the best public health outcome had ensured that there were no more than those three cases. It was, by any measure, a remarkably swift and effective response. But it wasn't the first time Shepparton had responded so effectively to the COVID threat. Back in the early days, leading up to Easter, when the scale of the global disaster was emerging, Shepparton's foundations, the Greater Shepparton Foundation and the Fairley Foundation, worked with local community support agencies to implement a rapid response that brought Shepparton together to fight COVID-19. This is how it began. What we noticed was that people were getting a bit scared of what was happening and that was a bit of a panic. And uh, then they noticed that, you know, certain jobs were starting to, you know, they weren't able to work and that caused a bit of stress on some families. Uh, We noticed that we do welfare, but it was getting more and more all the time. That was Sandy Anderson, the manager of the Marupna Life Op Shop. She also runs a welfare support service that provided food relief, helps with household items and also acts as a referral service. In those early days, Sandy would go home to cook meals for families she knew were struggling with the hardships generated by COVID. Across town, Amanda McCulloch, executive officer of the Fairley Foundation, detected a change in mood in the town and awareness of the risks the pandemic posed. Food demand has always been an issue in this community. What I think COVID did was highlight that that demand would be immediate and that potentially on top of that, there would be people losing their jobs, staying at home. There could be, uh, you know, domestic violence situations and other circumstances. People wouldn't necessarily get that immediate access to other things that they would normally be able to access in the community with everything shutting down. Shepparton is not a typical regional town. In many ways, what makes it unique and appealing are the things that can also make it vulnerable in times of crisis. It is a rich, multicultural community that includes many refugees and a range of language groups. Almost 15% of the Greater Shepparton population was born overseas, reflecting a rich and successful tradition of migration that dates back to World War I and a more recent embrace of refugee settlement. It's surrounded by the rich agricultural land of the Goulburn Valley, often called the fruit basket of Victoria, where many migrants have laboured over the years. There are only 62,000 residents, but Shepparton is emerging as a strong regional player in Victoria. A new art museum is nearing completion. A big public high school that brings together some existing schools is planned. 
and house prices, even during the pandemic, were on the rise. But it has its own problems, food insecurity, unemployment, poverty and homelessness. So what happens when a global pandemic turns up? What do you do to protect the vulnerable? And who helps address the problem? We're sitting in what's called the Settlement Hub in Shepparton. This is the base for Uniting Victoria Tasmania, a local community services organisation that provides support and guidance for many residents, especially those from a multicultural background. It's a glorious day. There is a sense of optimism in the air. Shepparton has its share of roadworks and building sites, like everywhere else, but the town is lively. There are people out and about. There's a sense of urgency, and most of them are still wearing masks. There are four of us seated at the round table. Sandy from Marupna Life Op Shop, Amy DiPola, who works as one of the town's independent schools, and Liz Rodriguez, a pastoral wellbeing officer at a local primary school. They've been brought here by Cheryl Hammer, the CEO of the Greater Shepparton Foundation, because they were part of the town's first rapid response to the pandemic. There's no mistaking their justifiable pride in how their community came together so promptly to deal with COVID's impact. Sandy spotted early on that the crisis created a new set of problems. Found that it wasn't the normal people that were coming. It was um, a lot of different people. So it put a lot of stress on us, but it put a lot of stress on the people because they weren't used to coming in. They didn't understand what was around for them, so it made it hard. Sandy has been helping dispense food staples to those looking for support, but she noticed that some parents were feeding their kids but missing out themselves. So Sandy started to cook meals to try to meet the growing need. And then, in Sandy's words, an angel in the form of Amy turned up. Um, for me, I was, I think it was in March and this thing that was overseas suddenly seemed to be here on our doorstep in Shepparton. We tend to watch the international news and it's always happening um, somewhere else. It's not necessarily um, feeling like it's going to impact on us and that was rapidly changing and I think we were all sort of wondering what the consequence of that was going to be. So, so watching the news a lot um, and on our local news they were doing stories about how hospitality um, industries and businesses were suddenly finding their bookings for the next six months were gone and, and they had no work and they were having to lay off staff. Um, and the particular night that I watched it, the following story was how food agencies just weren't getting the food they needed to distribute because at that point supermarkets were uh, being chopped out. So it wasn't enough for paying customers, let alone the charities that rely on that, that food. So in my mind, it seemed, being a practical person, um, it just seemed logical that if we could employ our hospitality industry to make meals for our agencies or the people in need, um, then that was a, a very tidy little solution. The, the one issue was obviously we wanted to pay the hospitality industries. It, it wasn't a time to ask them 
and often a lot of our hospitality industries or, or local businesses give so much to the community, um, but this certainly wasn't that scenario where you would say, can you donate meals? Mm. Um, we wanted to support them. So Amy took her idea to Cheryl at the Greater Shepparton Foundation. She knew Cheryl was well-connected and the foundation was an organisation equipped to respond to such situations and ideally respond quickly. Amy's idea was to help support local hospitality outlets who were adversely impacted by the lockdown. Cheryl was already talking to local welfare agencies and services to identify local priorities. From those conversations, food emerged as the immediate need. After Cheryl discussed it with her board and with the support of the Fairley Foundation, Cheryl went back to Amy. Um, she came back to me and said, we'll give you some money for you to do this and also the Fairley Foundation as well. So I thought, OK, I have to make a decision here whether to commit or not to making this happen. But, you know, I couldn't help myself. It was, um, yeah, it was just an idea that seemed very worthwhile. So um, so we, we ran a pilot and, and then yeah, once you start engaging with the people, the hospitality businesses and the agencies and the schools, you sort of become emotionally involved and attached and, and you see the outcomes and the benefits. So I guess that just kept us going. The result of the collaboration was Foodlink, which became the vehicle for donations that would help raise funds for businesses to make the meals that could then be given to the support services and schools to deliver to those in need. It all came together in just 24 hours. It was very much a rapid response mm. to a situation yes, that required yes. a rapid response. So mm. uh, we were doing the pilot and really planning for the week beyond that at the mm. same time. Um, and, I get, and being a, a grassroots, we didn't come from infrastructure or an organisation that had a hierarchy and you needed to wait for people to make decisions, we could just really hit the ground running. Um, and certainly having that initial, I think, between the community fund at the Great Shepparton Foundation and um, the Fairley Foundation, we had $10,000, which sort of gave us a very comfortable start. Um, and that also it gave us credibility and we then launched a Facebook campaign so we could take it out to the community and give them some ownership and that was another thing that we discovered not only were we supporting uh, the hospitality industries our agencies and the people receiving the meals but the community needed to feel like they could help I, I think in circumstances where everyone's feeling a bit vulnerable um, and, and they're seeing other people in, in vulnerable situations people want to help they want to, to do something um, and so we were offering them a circumstance where they could contribute. The impact of Foodlink went beyond providing nourishment and sustenance for those in need or support for the local hospitality businesses. Uh, it made a huge difference as in we could uh, catch up with people and make sure that they were okay as well. Like, you know, hand them a meal and just to tap in to make sure that they're okay. Because you, you forget about all the other things that happen. It's, you know, the isolation that was there as well. You know, we all say, of, you know, this is the long-term effect that this is going to have on people is um, mind, body and soul, isn't it? So we were able to reach out and, and take a meal and not check up. It wasn't about checking up, but it was, are you okay? You know, those couple of words and we care. Those are the things that a lot of people haven't heard. Are you okay? You know, it's something that is so simple to say and we were able to take a meal, make sure they're okay 
and if they weren't okay, lead them into other areas. Across the community, issues were emerging that reflected the existing vulnerabilities and underlined the need for prompt action. Liz saw the impacts immediately in the school system. We realised that we quickly had to change the way we did things as a school community and as a wellbeing team and we realised that we'd have to do, you know, outreach, family support and outreach and crisis support really and in those first couple of days and weeks we were getting a lot of calls through around school fees and being able to put them on hold. So we made it an active effort of our wellbeing team to make contact with every family possible at the start of uh, COVID and that prior to going into the first uh, remote learning and lockdown. Um, so we had our particular year levels or pastoral groups that we would contact. And from that, we discovered, you know, the worry, the concern. We had a lot of our families that work in hospitality and own restaurants and things like that. So they were really severely impacted. Um, we also have a really uh, vulnerable demographics anyway. So a lot of uh, families, Indigenous families, and uh, we have, uh, you know, separated families, children in out-of-home care. So we had all those families to support anyway, but we found that there were so many more families that needed support. But becoming tapped into the FoodLink program by helping to deliver meals had its own educational benefits too. Uh, so what initially started as drop-offs for resources, pencils, texters, then quickly um, became meals as well. Um, and we would have meals that we delivered each week to families in need. And then there was also resources that we delivered as well. So that was a great way that we could remain connected with our families. And in fact, we built up a really strong rapport with some of our families. And um, as I've, I've just heard, it was about that connection and about the fact that the families saw that we cared and uh, we felt that if they knew that um, and we were looking after their well-being, then they could support their children to do their remote learning. Once the front door was open, all kinds of connections opened up. It was surprising, uplifting and effective. And the meals became a really good connection and, in fact, took a lot of pressure off families. And we've built up some really strong connections with our families through that and through that remote learning. So, yeah, we, we were really busy. Some of us were dropping off resource packs, picking up homework from children that weren't able to send it online. Yeah, we were working pretty much um, from early morning to six or seven o'clock at night. Inherent in this was an understanding of the important place food occupies in our lives as a way of connecting communities, households and families. I, I guess it... It's obvious. I mean, as human beings, food is one of the greatest connectors that we we get together, gather together for a meal um, to interact and, and connect with, with people. So in some small way, this sort of reflected that during a time when we had to be isolated, we were still able to use food to connect on that human level. For us, delivering food from you know, uh, school teachers and school staff, it was like the icebreaker. And we'd say, here, here's the food. And then they would start to tell us a little bit about their story that we probably wouldn't have got if we were just on the phone. Um, So, you know, the resources was an icebreaker as well, but the food, and they were grateful and uh, 
you know, then they would tell us some more about their story. So then we'd ensure that they'd had had some food next week and and that type of thing. So um, so they learned to trust us and then they opened up and about, you know, what was going on for them. And it was about, you know, ensuring that they were feeling happy and uh, well supported in our school community and then they could support their children to do the learning. I, I always remember one of the times I went around, it was a young family, and um, it was like the eyes lit up because, oh, we're going to eat today. And, you know, you sort of just go, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us take it for granted. We've got meals. Then, you know, there was a couple of those ones. I took it that little bit more. You know, it wasn't just each week for a few weeks. And they were at school and that. And what I saw, and you know, is they weren't as hungry they were behaving better each time that I saw them. They had, like, you know, a couple of them were talking about, oh, we did this at school. Because it's not a five-second just, I'm going to take you a meal. Sometimes for half an hour. At least. Sometimes mm. a bit more. So it's not just that, here's your meal, I'm going. It's that connection. And to have that, I could spend more time making sure that families are getting a meal, getting what they need. And it was just like, oh, this is what needs to be happening, not just dropping it off and leaving. The initial goal for Foodlink was to provide relief for eight to 12 weeks, but the appeal established to support it raised $44,000 and provided 3,660 meals over 16 weeks. A second iteration, supported by local philanthropy, enabled the program to keep running. And it has given Amy and Cheryl, among others, an insight into the profound disadvantage some locals are dealing with and how simple things, such as the packaging of the meals that were being delivered, can make a difference in ways that they'd never contemplated. Cheryl recalls one conversation in particular. We went to an agency and to drop some meals off and I was helping with delivery the first couple of months. I was very hands-on as well. So, you know, any feedback on the meals themselves, the way we're delivering them, and, and she said, no, look, fantastic. And she said, right down to the packaging. And I said, what do you mean? And and we, I know I'm on the board of Shepherd and Food Share, so we know a lot of the barriers to people being able to give them food, but whether they can eat it or heat it or anything like that. Some people don't have the means to do it. You give a little round plastic soup container to a homeless person who needs to heat it up on a fire, (laughs) you know. So anyway, we have a number, particularly single middle-aged men, homeless. They love the packaging. It's got a top on it. It's secure when they get it. They can put it in a plastic bag. They can bury it so it is where it is when they go back for it. Because if they've got to pack up what they can carry into town to do what they might need to do or go and try and find a toilet or a shower or something like that, they need to bury their food so they know it's there when they go back. So that helps with that. Plus, when they they can light themselves a little fire and sit the alfoil on the hot stones and they can actually have, have it as a hot meal. While using meals was one way to sustain the community... Another particularly local concern needed to be addressed. In Melbourne, there was criticism about the manner and effectiveness of advice to multicultural communities about social distancing, hygiene and other protocols associated with the pandemic. Shepparton, in comparison, 
didn't muck around. The solution was a series of videos featuring local leaders delivering COVID-safe messages in their own language. Sarah Nori, who is Uniting's Program Manager, Resilient Communities, Goulburn Northeast, heard directly at the start of the pandemic from her range of clients that their families and communities had important questions about COVID-19, and the answers needed to be delivered by locals who were trusted in their own community. So Nick, when, when this pandemic started, it was a chaos, obviously very confusing for many of us who could actually speak the language, could make sense of what's actually happening. Um, and let alone, you know, when we were actually talking to our communities in Shepparton who could not speak the language, it was really confusing for them. They could not get their head around any information that was being provided, obviously, through DHHS or even their caseworkers at the time. So what happened was that many of them started making contact with us directly because, as you know, that Sediment Hub is home for most of our clients and many of the community members as well in Shepparton. So they said, is there anything that we can hear in our own language? And I was like, well, that would be fantastic. But I was being really cautiously optimistic as well at the same time thinking, hey, would this be sustainable as well? Like, Because we can actually do it for, for once. But what happens after that? Will we be able to have the capacity to continue to do that and provide it for them? Because we knew that this is not going to end tomorrow. Anyway, we then went to the community and asked what would be a practical solution. So we asked them, we respond to the need. The crucial decision was to provide the information in a visual and audible form, rather than another written language version of the official material. In those circumstances, it was clear that videos were the best way forward once the pandemic arrived. We've been resettling refugees for a very long time, and I can say that, you know, most of our clients, so around 80% can't even read and write in their own language. So if you translate resources and send it out to them, chances are they won't be able to read it. So it's best that we do some video resources for them just so that, you know, it's a lot easier for them to see, oh, this is my person that I go to, and this person is saying this, so I trust this person, and I'm going to do it. So it takes a little bit pressure off us in a sense that, you know, we don't have to force the compliance because they already trust that person. They've got a beautiful relationship. And when that person is asking them to do something in order to keep them safe and more broadly the community safe, it worked really well. The video's raw content was from the DHSS website and covered key areas such as COVID-19 information for the elderly, guidance on mental health and well-being, and guidelines around social distancing and hygiene. The Greater Shepparton Foundation provided $5,000 to cover the filming and production that was done by Southern Cross Stereo. Once the commitment was made, it came together seamlessly and that extended to engaging local translators. And I think the entire planning was done in less than eight hours, I would say. The key to successful translation was not simply a matter of turning the English instructions into one of seven nominated languages. It was a little more subtle than that. Dami, who is one of a small community of Punjabi speakers in Shepparton area, took on the task of translating the COVID advice for his community. I have to change a few things to just say in a way, because I think when you translate from one to another, it's always a difficulty there. So I have to flick a few things to say in an easier way. The impact of these videos was widespread. More than 3,000 individuals watched them. They were circulated in Arabic, Filipino, Punjabi, Denka, Swahili, Hazaragi and Dari. Social media helped promote the awareness and circulation of the videos. 
other agencies further afield, including some in Melbourne, were keen to use them. But perhaps the biggest testament to the video's success was that there were no COVID cases in Shepparton's multicultural communities. For all of the preventative strategies that had been put in place, the COVID-19 virus refused to play by the rules. In August, the Shepparton Village's aged care home became just another member of the club no one wanted to be part of, an aged care facility with a COVID case. But that was where its club membership stopped. It was one case, and Shepparton Villages moved promptly to implement a COVID plan it had made in March that ensured it remained at one case. The swift response was a useful pointer to what occurred several weeks later when the rogue truck driver came to town. Shepparton was determined not to expose itself to the virus. Carmel Johnson, director of Goulburn Valley Health Foundation and deputy chair of the Fairley Foundation, was struck by how swiftly the community responded to the new threat. We've had consistent um, testing um, throughout the year when people have done the right thing. You know, if they've had a sniffle or they've felt as though they've um, had some symptoms, they've been and been tested. So that's been happening. But then when this outbreak um, we were totally overwhelmed with the number of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think by about nine o'clock the first morning after it was announced, there was something like four or five hundred people in a queue, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. down through, snaking through the car park, down the, down the street. Thousands of tests came back negative. Shepparton had once again dodged a high-risk scenario. Carmen believes community leadership through the pandemic has been integral to that success, but she points to something else unique to Shepparton, that might also have played its part. I mean, I've been here, you know, about 40 years, a bit over 40 years, and I came from Melbourne, Mm. um, but I was raised in the country. Mm. Um, When I came to Shepparton, I found a completely different attitude. I found a community who were very hardworking. They didn't take anything for granted. It was very much a working man's town that everybody got in and did everything together. If there was a crisis, the whole community addressed it. There had been some really strong um, founders of this community and some, you know, very um, admirable um, forebears who, you know, laid great foundations for a community, but a community that, you know, needed... If if we want something, we need to work hard and we need to do it. We just don't expect... But perhaps the real secret is being able to react quickly and with purpose. Cheryl Hammer, CEO of the Greater Shepparton Foundation, describes the philosophy she discussed with her board at the start of the pandemic. It was a simple one. If not now, when? Put another way, there was no better time to act quickly than with COVID-19 booming. We could see that things were going to unfold very quickly and as a philanthropic organisation we have some freedoms uh, that other organisations with bureaucracy, lots of red tape, take a lot of time to get some decisions across the the board, having to put in some paperwork and modelling up things. Uh, as a very small organisation, Greater Shepherd and Foundation was able to act and react in a way that we didn't have those cumbersome barriers to getting on with things. We've been at a grassroots level in our community for a very long time and we wanted to get back to those grassroots and be able to find out 
have an impact where there was a real need rather than be having a more formal approach to, well, let's have a look at that and let's see what might happen and uh, maybe we should sit on the sidelines for a little while and see who else steps up to do this. We just didn't think there was time for that. Importantly, the Foundation had a network of agencies it could enlist to help deliver services. It also had the credibility and the trust to leverage those relationships for mutually beneficial outcomes. Before COVID, I had spoken to my board about uh, giving me some more freedom around that process and not being as strict in the timing uh, and also being able to be a little bit more flexible if we still did an annual grant round, but be more flexible outside of those parameters yes, so yes. we could respond and be so already the conversation around being a little bit more flexible and being able to respond to things that are happening at the time was being had internally. But, you know, and then along came COVID and, and sort of cemented that we did yes, need to be flexible, yes, needed to be responsive, and yes, needed to be a little bit more grazing in the way that we go about about things, a little bit more fluid. As Cheryl sees it, supporting and building capacity for those community organisations to go back to their community and do what they needed to do was vital in helping everyone manage the crisis. What happened in October was in some ways the culmination of the way Shepparton had responded during the previous six months. I believe we were protecting what we know and love here. And it is a community that looks after each other. It's a community that wraps around if there's a need and we needed to wrap around this, you know, right from the businesses that were involved in that outbreak and not knowing for 11 days, you know, that they could possibly have been spreading Mm. uh, the virus. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think we still only had those those three cases. Mm. But for all of that, no one is ignoring the reality of what looms ahead. Amanda at the Fairley Foundation is expecting that once federal government support ends, there may well be new issues to confront. And Amanda believes COVID-19's impact on Shepparton has shone a light on the community's weaker points. We know some of the disadvantages of the community already, pre-COVID, and we could foreshadow, and I still think we can foreshadow what could potentially be to come. Um, I think uh, with things like job keeper, job seeker finishing, there's a whole lot of uncertainty still in the community. We've been propped up for a long period of time during this whole COVID crisis. Um, but I think the philanthropy will have a really big part to play in how we recover and how we support our community to recover. And it, it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. It can't just be one philanthropic um, organisation like the Greater Shepparton Foundation um, shouldering the entire load. It, it's just not going to work. Similarly, it can't just be, you know, one food organisation or, or, you know, um, Uniting Care, for example, shouldering the whole load of, of their sector. We need to really come together and I think government's done a fairly good job of that so far in demonstrating they'll be supporting in different areas and philanthropy need to step up to the plate and demonstrate that they're going to support too. Amanda believes, though, that if the response from COVID has shown anything, it's the power of collaboration, that rather than working in isolation, people coming together can have a greater impact for community benefit. No one in Shepparton believes that philanthropy has all the answers or can indeed provide anything but be part of the solution. But if COVID-19 has revealed anything to the local community, it is its capacity to support and sustain itself. 
and that generates its own pride and optimism, especially for Cheryl. I'm excited for the future because we have made some twists and turns and we have had to reconsider some things for sure, but we do know that our future is cemented here and our future's bright in being able to uh, be part of our community, whichever way that looks. But being creative, I love that word and, and that's what we're trying to be, most definitely innovative as well. I think doing more of the same sustains you for a little while, but we do have to be creative and innovative in the way that we support others and in the way that we deliver. This has been the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson and thanks for listening.